Well, we're back. It has been a little while since we've posted a podcast, but it's getting down to the wire here at the end of the summer, and we've all been busy and trying to get ready for hunting seasons here locally, but what we're most excited about right now is our upcoming Colorado trip, and I think that's what we're going to discuss tonight because that's all we can manage to think about and talk about throughout the rest of our daily routines so anyway we're going to jump right in and share with y'all a little bit of our excitement that's good but uh uh you might should tell them who we are since it's been so long this is the hard scrabble hunter podcast this is uh and i'm Harmon carson kip carson and i'm justin rhodes as always (laughs) Uh, it's been a while but we are back glad to be back and hopefully it won't be so long next time well before uh we get started this isn't really in the notes and we might be nixing this a little bit in in a minute but three of us are here heading to colorado but one of our members potentially wasn't going to be making it to colorado justin tell us what happened the other day when we were uh we were shooting our bows trying to sight it in out of my parents house where we could shoot long range and uh we we had a little incident why don't you tell us about that well, there is now a world-famous Hoyt that's been spread all over social media that got ran over by a tractor, <laughs> and that Hoyt belongs to this guy. <laughs> not, not just like a long tractor, but a a a full-size, full-scale, 105-horsepower cabin air Kubota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, so we were, we were shooting the other day at, Harmon and Kip's house and their dad just so happened to be cutting hay in the field next to us and we're shooting way back trying to dial my sight tape in and then we walked up I wanted to check something at 20 yards we walked up I shot a group and the thought crossed my mind about him being on the tractor but I never dreamed that he would cut through the yard on the tractor come to find out he usually cuts through the yard on the tractor when he's cutting in that field. <laughs> anyway, so the bow and air, the bow and the rest of my arrows and rangefinder got laid down at 20 yards from the hay bale where we were shooting. And Victor Harmon and Kip's dad comes around the corner as he gets through cutting hay and goes right over the top of my brand new Hoyt Defiant. <laughs> I looked up just in time to see. The uh, the old Hoyt leapfrogging out from underneath a massive rubber tire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was no stopping it. We were pulling it, arrows, and he was in a hurry to get back to the house. He never saw the bow. And all our um, backs were turned, and he was watching us. <laughs> not yeah, and he was watching us pull arrows. <laughs> it was anyway. one of the jaw drop, heart stop. Oh dear God, what did I just what did I just witness? <laughs> so. The amazing part of this whole story is the the bow. It's a testament to Hoyt's quality, and you know this isn't a Hoyt advertisement, but the bow into H and H Archery in town. Our good friend Chip Hemphill, and we put the bow on the press. Uh, went through it, checked the cams, axles, everything. Couldn't find anything wrong with it. Um, the sight did get broken, which a tractor ran over it. So. You would expect that. The, the sight was kind of sticking out on a dovetail. That got broken. 
Um, I talked to Dustin at Black Gold. Those guys are great. They're taking care of it. Uh, and I overnighted it to them. They're priority shipping it back to me. I should have it in a couple of days. Um, anyway, so it's all good. The bow survived. The site's getting fixed. And that's the story. <laughs> and now we are back on uh, back on the on the route to Colorado. We were been trying to get my curve sighted in and get everything straightened out. Trying some new eras out this year and working working on trying to get everything sighted in. And I think we're we're pretty much ready to go. Yeah, I'm just sitting over here with all the rest of the people on Facebook wondering what kind of moron gets his bow run over by the tractor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's been a little bit of hate. You know, it's like who lays their bows down? Who lays their bow down in the grass? Well, I would much rather lay my bow down in the grass. I've been doing that for 19 or 20 years since I started bow hunting. I've never had an issue, but there never was a guy cutting hay next to where I was shooting either. Well, <laughs> people don't realize life happens. That's that's what keeps insurance companies in business. Nobody plans on nobody plans on things to happen, and they just do. Plus, our our yard is set up is set up kind of unique the way the tractor can cut through and where where the archery range is out there. It's kind of You'd understand if you saw it. <laughs> yeah, and with that being said, you know, some somebody on Facebook, you know, typical Facebook keyboard warrior, but somebody on Facebook was like, well, why don't you have a bow stand? Well, I've seen bows get knocked over on bow stands. I would much rather lay my bow down in the grass every single time rather than my bow fall over and knock my sight off or, you know, damage something that, would have been fine if it was laying down so i'm gonna keep laying my bow in the grass the facebook warriors can say whatever they want and <laughs> we're just gonna watch out for the tractor next time <laughs> hey i tell you one of the one of the most happy moments of my life was realizing that i had your actually bow is in your hand <laughs> in the bed of my truck <laughs> well yeah. that's what that's what kip said it very well could have been three bows laying there you know it's that he ran over like we're both shooting from the same line let's set them down right here and we go right back to the same spot after pulling and yeah, yeah, I was so glad that I don't think that recurve would have. <laughs> Hoyt makes an awesome product, but I don't think their carbon carbon recurve limbs would have withstood that. <laughs> well, a, a seven-year-old PSE probably wouldn't have either. <laughs> Just the anyway. Nation. So let let's get back to what we're talking about. Uh, who's who's ready to go to Colorado? Everybody. I'm ready. Yesterday, <laughs> I sit. I was born on go when it came to that. The, uh, but yeah, it's, it's like the highlight of my entire year. And I say this honestly, just as much as I look forward to October bow season, October 1st here in Louisiana, I look forward every year to our yearly annual trip West. And it's like the days leading up the week leading up to when you can look online and see what tags you drew is it is absolute torment. And I'm like looking every 15 minutes hoping that some miracle happened and they release the, release the data early. Hoping that and some I, miracle happened and you actually drew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For me, that's the truth. I, my, my luck with Colorado is absolutely terrible. I think we've mentioned this before, but, uh, uh, but we've been going up there a long time. Dad actually, when he married my mom, I'll give you a little history on how, what got us started going. She had an uncle that lived in uh, in Pueblo, Colorado, and 
they'd gone up there to visit. And at that time you can pretty much hunt all over anywhere over the counter. Well, dad was into bow hunting and he's like, there's deer everywhere. So he buys a tag, goes out and, um, I don't remember if it was a doe or a little four corner or something, but in short order fills a tag. Well, that's been 35 years ago. And I don't think he's missed a year, a year, uh, since. Um, and then whenever, you know, they had kids and stuff, he didn't stop going, just uh, when I was, when I turned 12 years old was the year that Colorado bumped the youth age down to 12 years. And that was like the big surprise for my 12th birthday. He's like, look, you got your bow, you're shooting good. This year, you're going to Colorado hunting with me. And that was like, it was just the best thing that ever happened. And and since then, since I was 12, I think I, mi- I missed four years due to college. I don't know why I let my priorities get out of line. <laughs> but, but, uh, but since then. I've made, I counted it up the other day. It's like, this will be my 17th, 17th week long hunting trip to Colorado. So, and then Harmon's been there pretty much the same amount of time, minus four years. And that's only because he's four years younger. Yeah. Um, and then we've carried Justin with us. Well, we carried him. He hunted with me two years ago for a full week. He didn't have a tag, but he tagged along and tried to video me uh seeing nothing except for deer that i once again didn't have tags for and (laughs) and then uh and then last year me and justin we went bear hunting and but anyway we're all like totally totally just amped up about getting back in the mountains yeah it's the 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 really the highlight of our of our hunting season starts out right at the beginning for us and the week after we get back is probably the lowest point of the year we're the most depressed flatlanders you can imagine when we're, you know, up in the mountains and beautiful spruce country. And that's all you can smell is the, is the cedars and stuff in the air. And then you get back down here and you can barely breathe because the air's so thick. Uh, it's just really depressing when you come back. <laughs> yeah, that works both ways, right? You can barely breathe when you first get up there, and then you can barely <laughs> breathe when you get back because it's so hot. But at least it smells good. Like right. Our friend Brad, first time he went up there, he's like, he, we rolled down the window and uh, that morning as we got in, and it's like, you know, 56 degrees or so. And he's like, oh, my goodness, everything smells like a Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. It gets in your blood uh Unlike anything I've ever I've ever done, it's just it's addictive. Yeah, the mountains mountains become a part of you. So we've been we've been doing it for a while. We've we've killed deer, we've killed elk, we've we've got a lot of experience going up there. But and it's something that it's something that really just about anybody can do. Um, we're we're doing we're going to get into the type hunt we're doing this year, which is a little different than what we have been doing in the past. But uh, but just some we'll go through some things here for anybody who's curious. Just some basic things about hunting in Colorado. The reason why we say Colorado is because that's Harmon Harmon went to Idaho bear hunting, but other than that, we pretty much stayed in Colorado due to a limited time uh, and b availability of tags because. There's a lot of other places we'd like to go, but you know. and really precedence. You know, dad dad has known the area for years, been going up there for so long, and we grew up going up there, so we know the area really well. So it with us only having a week to hunt and traveling up there and not actually having all summer to scout and find big deer and, you know, look different areas, we're able to hunt in a week's time with good success just because we know the area really well. 
Well, that's it's, kind of the that's kind of the key to success anywhere in the West is there's several states, Idaho being one, Montana being one, Colorado, where you can buy over the counter tags for deer, elk, and deer in Idaho and deer and elk in Montana, some places I believe, and then Colorado, primarily elk. But if you know the area or you have some local knowledge, your chances of success are skyrocket dramatically. You know, you can you can buy a tag, but if you're just a guy showing up from another state without a clue that hasn't done his homework, you're probably not going to be very successful. And that's the reason some of the success rates are so low in some of these units because you get guys from Louisiana or Texas or wherever that just show up with no pre-existing knowledge of that area and you know it's it's a it's a needle in a haystack at that point which you know and it, and it takes the truth is it, it 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 may take several years of doing that before you finally um before you finally you know crack the code and figure out what you're doing because yeah there 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 are a lot of tactics that we use here that we carry up there um in fact out of the mule deer that I've killed on you know it's all been public land national forest hunting Half of the mule deer I've shot, I have shot from a tree stand hunting them whitetail style. The other half has been on the ground, spot and stalk, uh, you know, western type hunting style. Um, so, you know, you just got to use what works and know what, um, you know, use what works and get out there and try something new. But if you know what you're, you're doing, at, if you know what you're doing back east, if you have a good pitch point or a funnel and you know, uh, you know, you got a beat down deer trail. Well, carry your tree stand, hang it up. I don't care if the people out west do laugh at you. Uh, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of benefit to doing that type of thing. Well, it's a it's a deal. Animals are all of them are tend to be creatures of habit. And if you know an animal's behavior, uh, deer they're typically going to take the path of least resistance. They they got to have shelter, food, and water. Uh, they there's they they tend especially in the summertime they all tend to have fairly consistent patterns and you can you can take the same tactics that you use to hunt the southern whitetails and carry them out west like what kip was saying and if you find a heavily used trail coming out of a meadow that you can tell there's browse uh, and you know you can you can see browsing up there the same way you do down here so if you can find browsing or find a wallow or a pond or something, some sort of water source where there's, you know, tracks and a heavily used trail between the two, or or a funnel like Kip said, and set up a set up a deer stand on it, just like uh, just like you would for a whitetail. Uh, all the mule deer, and I've killed three elk up there. Every single one of them have been out of a tree stand. Uh, completely unorthodox for most western hunting, but obviously obviously been beneficial and, and works so well for some of that for the habitat that you guys not th that doesn't really apply this year but some of the places you guys have hunted in the past that's well, not conducive for spot and stop yeah in the thick timber you know you those tactics are probably as or more effective than a than spot and stalk would be because you're pretty much limited to the meadows and stuff at that lower elevation yeah, you're 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 still hunting timber just like you are down south. There's just not as much undergrowth, and it's a different type of tree, and it's really steep, and there's not as much oxygen. <laughs> yeah, that's the deal. Is a lot of 
a, a lot of people never step out and try it because they're intimidated because what you see on TV, what you hear people talk about, it's basically like somebody who's been sitting in a tree stand their entire life is absolutely terrified by the fact that he's going to have to sneak up on a deer because, you know, he's been down here maybe in uh, Mississippi, Alabama, or Georgia or something where he knows there ain't no way on God's green earth he's just going to go sneak up on a deer. Um, and out there it's totally different. So a lot of people never make the step to get out there because they're, you know, intimidated by it. But, you know, you've got to give it a try, which brings up brings up the other issue that usually comes into play, and that is cost. Um, most people also never try it because they're like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime trip. I just can't afford that, blah, blah, blah. Um, I figured up a while back that, on average, my hunting trips in Colorado cost me $100 a day, and that is including gas food, license, and everything. Now, there's a, there's, a lot that, there's a lot of things that go into that getting it that cheap, but basically when you go up, when you get two or three friends to go with you, you split the gas, you camp out all week on National Forest. Um, you know, your deer license is, I don't know, off the top of my head, like 350 $375. Elk license is about 600 or so. You can, uh, if you're hunting one or the other, you can, you can go out there for really cheap. And when you can go out there, um, for really cheap, you can do it year after year after year. Just because you, like Harmon has a nice, um, I don't know if it was ever officially scored, but like a nice, basically right out Pope and Young 6x6 six six on the wall. And uh, what what happened when you went to get those film, that film picture, the, the your pictures developed? The woman at the... Uh, oh, she, she said, how much did you pay for this thing? In a, in, in a very condescending way. Yeah, she was like, how, how much did you pay for this hunt? And I said, uh, about $900. <laughs> and she just looked at me. She was like, no, seriously. And I said, about $900. And she said, that's it? And I said, yeah. She said, well, I figured you'd have had to pay eight to 10000 at least to, to kill something like that. And, uh, and I said, no, it was a, a do-it-yourself. I didn't pay anybody else to guide me or anything. It was all on public land you know, chipping in on gas and food together with some buddies and family and, uh, you can do it pretty cheap. And anyway, she was, she was pretty surprised. She, she was offended that I would spend that much money to go do something like that and then realize that I didn't have to spend that much. Well, that's the, that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you can hunt the, a large percentage of the property or land in the West is public land. And, guys from back east aren't you know we're not used to thinking with that mentality because we're used to having deer leases and private land where you have to get you know permission to trespass or permission to hunt or in louisiana and texas most of the land is leased up you got to pay to hunt unless you've got a friend or something but a, a very large percentage of of land in in the west especially in certain states is public land wilderness area national forest um, there's there's millions of acres that are available to hunt if you just know how to use the system and apply for tags and you know how to play the tag game. Yeah. Um, well, that's the cool that's the cool thing about Colorado. <clears throat> all the all the deer hunting in the whole state. I think I have this right. I think every bit of the deer tags in, in the whole state are all 
lottery application, you know, you're applying for it. And that's not necessarily a long, drawn-out process. Uh, there's a, a lot of places you can draw with only one point. Um, the place where we usually go usually takes two to three points to draw now. But <clears throat> there's like about 80, 75 or 80% of the whole state that is over-the-counter elk tags. Uh, I did not draw uh, the deer tag that I wanted this year, so I'm going to show up. I'm going to go buy me an over-the-counter elk tag. And I'll be able to go up there and spend the week in the mountain with uh, these guys without drawing anything. So you don't, yeah, you can play the tag game, but you don't necessarily have to is the great thing about it. Yeah, there's more over-the-counter elk up there than what there is. Uh, like you said, I don't think there's hardly any over-the-counter deer anymore. I don't, I don't think there is any in the state. Yeah. Well, one one mistake a lot of people make, too, and I see this a lot because I'm on forums and I tend to spend a lot of time online. But don't don't be that guy that just jumps online and says, "Hey, I want to hunt elk in Colorado. What's a good unit?" When you do that, like twenty red flags are going to go off, and nobody's going to tell you, give you any kind of information. But if you get on there and you act like you've done your homework and you know what you're talking about, and you you know you put in some time and research to to learn something about what unit you need to be hunting and where you need to be hunting, there's People, people out there will help you. Um, any of us would help you. We're not going to tell you the basin we're hunting in, but any of us would help you. <laughs> uh, that you know, if if you're if you really have put your time in, so don't, don't get on there on rock slide or archery talk or say, man, I want to hunt. Uh, I want to hunt kill an elk in Colorado. What's a good unit? Well, that immediately tells everybody that you haven't done the least amount of research or put in any work for it. You haven't earned anything, so to speak. And Colorado, and uh, I'm pretty sure uh, most most state wildlife websites have pretty good tools that will point you in a decent direction and show you um, wildlife movement patterns based on species and uh, population densities in certain areas. And you can pick just to you know do some research, try to find a if you're interested in a certain area, you can get online or get on their website and and try to find that use these tools, these population densities and migration patterns and whatnot to to find a, a specific area that you'd like to hunt, just to narrow narrow your choice down some. Yeah, if you're not if you're not gonna if you're not gonna put forth the effort and put the work in to find out the basics and at least figure out what area you want to hunt in you're not going to be the kind of person who's going to put actually get out there and do the work that it takes to go kill a mule deer or an elk because it's not you don't just walk out there walk a hundred yards from your truck and go kill one in most instances out there it's, it's not it's not back east you got to get that out of your head yeah you're gonna have to do some hiking well the, the the debate comes up a lot and we've probably talked about this before but the debate comes up about you know what's harder hunting out west or hunting out hunting out east you know the spot and stalk guy or the guy sitting in a tree stand and and physically hunting out west is much harder um, mentally hunting back east is probably harder because you're not moving around you're not seeing animals you're not glassing you're sitting there sometimes for days and days uh, without seeing anything or anything worth shooting um, so hunting out west is 
I'm not going to say it's more or less of a challenge. It is a different challenge, and it's a physical challenge. And there's some physical aspects that you're going to have to, you know, take into consideration, like altitude and breathing at high altitude, especially, you know, like us. We live, well, I live like 200 feet above sea level because my house is on a hill. <laughs> if, yeah. if I lived down the street, I would be at sea level or pretty much. And then, you know, in a, in a week and a half, I'll be at 13,000 feet within a 24-hour period. And uh, if if you guys want to, we can just talk about, you know, some of the stuff that we've done to prepare for that, some of the stuff that helps, some of the stuff that, you know, may not help. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot you can do. Uh, but as far as I'm going to back up just a second, when people try to try to place one type hunting, whether it be the western hunter bashing the tree stand hunter or the tree stand hunter bashing the western hunter because this is harder or that's harder, in my opinion, you're just showing your ignorance because it is absolutely comparing apples and oranges. Uh, it's There is a huge physical component and a huge mental component. They've all got their own different things you're dealing with, but, uh, but the, the biggest thing for a guy coming from the east to the west, uh, the biggest hurdle to overcome will be the physical component because, quite frankly, then that that's this is just my opinion. You can take me and put me out west, and I've, I've got to be in in severely bad physical shape before my mind even thinks about getting writing it off because of the excitement. The holy cow, there could be an elk right around that tree, or this is there's a mule deer. I've never seen one of these before. Oh my goodness, because they have a tendency to make themselves visible. You see way more animals. And so mentally, I don't, I do not, I don't check out out there. Physically, you could easily get yourself in a position to where you check out. Well, the the mental, the mental challenge up there is, you know, my quads are killing me, and we've got seventeen hundred more feet to hit this peak, <laughs> and, and to make it over the top. You know, that's the, that's the 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 mental challenge is, you know, it's between your ears, just keeping your body going, but. Uh, the the challenge of having to sit there without seeing anything and having to the self control to make yourself stay in that stand past ten o'clock or you know till dark or whatever, like we have around here, it's it's totally different because your your mind is engaged a lot more and there's you know there's a lot more going on so you're not as as bored so to speak. Yeah, there there's a uh, it's, it's definitely like I said apples and oranges and I will say this us talking about the physical aspects, don't be intimidated by it because quite frankly, uh, I don't think I have actually killed a, any of my mule deer more than uh, three quarters of a mile from a road. Uh, and, you know, to some, to some, to some guys out West, that's blasphemy. Oh my goodness. You've only been, you've only killed your deer three quarters of a mile from the road. I can tell you firsthand experience. Most of the Western hunters I run across out there, they don't stray more than 200 yards from the road. Yeah, they're pretty bad about being road hunters in the area that we hunt. Anyway. Yeah, that's, not, not that's, all of them, obviously. And that's a story for another day. There's there's yeah. tons of people that are hardcore and way out there and get back in the backcountry and, and do it, you know, do it the right way. But just because you are back east, you you can go hunting and not have to kill yourself. But no matter what, you will be better off if you're in much better physical shape. So back into what are, what are you doing to get ready, Justin? 
Well, I've, I've actually, and I may get some, you know, jokes for this, but I actually started this workout program with my wife a while back that uh, it's by Jamie Eason. It's a woman. It's not necessarily a woman's workout, but it... That's app- what I'd say, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can look. You can look it up. There's a free app, the Bodybuilding.com app. It's Jamie Eason's Live Fit Trainer, and it's a awesome workout program. And one of the things it does is it incorporates cardio almost every day, and it you hit legs about three times a week, which is a lot. Um, a lot of lunges, a lot of squats. Um, there's your legs are getting hammered, and I, I think just from the you know the small amount of time we spent up there couple weeks ago uh that really really helped me out because while you know while you still have the altitude issues i wasn't having i wasn't having issues with my legs my legs didn't get sore they weren't uh you know not to the they were they were sore at the end of the trip but not to the point of where you know it hindered me and uh i think that has really helped a lot that and just doing a lot of cardio because there's no way you can compensate it's it's not going to be fun going from sea level to thirteen thousand feet. There's there's nothing you can really do to prepare to that prepare for that. Um, I have been training the last few days with a altitude mask. Whether that there's a lot of debate about what how effective that is because it doesn't actually reduce the amount of oxygen that you're breathing. It just restricts the airflow. Um, I do think it helps. I do think it makes your you know your pulmonary system stronger, those muscles stronger because you're having to fight to get that air. Uh, I've been doing cardio with that mask on, but uh, primarily just hitting the legs hard and doing a lot of cardio, and and it's going to make a huge difference. You know, losing a little weight, doing a lot of cardio, uh, you're you're going to need that to survive up there. Yeah, the, the more the more high and the more extreme you go, the the uh the tougher the challenges are typically the place we usually hunt the tallest peak in that range is only like uh about 10,500 so most of our most of our hunt typically gets between 9,000 to 105 this particular unit we're going into this time is uh <clears throat> you know we'll be hunting anywhere between 11 to 13 uh roughly where we were a couple of weeks ago, we climbed up to thirteen eight, and and that the higher you get at what is it? We looked it up at twelve thousand feet. You're breathing forty percent less oxygen. Uh, the concentration yeah, it's, is it's lower. a little less than that, but it's right at forty. I think that was at fourteen thousand, but it's still it's close. I know it's twelve. Twelve is what it oh, is. Was it twelve? Okay, that's forty percent. Uh, at least on the the table that I looked up, and it's uh it ha- it has major effects on you. Um, and I, and I say that I know firsthand that uh, physical conditioning can, uh, or or lack of physical conditioning, can play directly into how your body deals with it. Um, <clears throat> some people, granted, it just affects more than others. I heard a guy just last week talking about being on a hunt at seven thousand, and he said the altitude at seven thousand was like just killing him, um, and. Me at seven thousand feet, yeah, I guess I can tell there's a difference, but it doesn't really slow me down. Once I pass nine thousand, it starts hurting. Um, yeah, normally, normally where we typically hunt, I I don't really have an issue at all. Like Kip said, we're hunting, we're hunting ninety five hundred feet, ten thousand feet, something like that, and it 
it doesn't really affect me. The older I've gotten, for whatever reason, the older I've gotten, the altitude tends to affect me a little bit. It takes me a little bit to get acclimated. I might get dizzy a little bit. But on this scouting trip that we just went on, when I went up to 13,000, for whatever reason, my body did not like it at all. Uh, I had I had bad headaches. I was nauseated, and I went through all kinds of pain pills trying to trying to get rid of my headache. Felt like migraines, and I uh, don't really know. It, it, it was worse at night, and then during the day when I'd get active and we'd be hiking around, I was okay. And then towards the evening, it would start hitting me again. And I uh, don't really know other than just altitude, and it wasn't. I don't. I've I never really had that issue before, so I'm not real sure why my body reacted that that way this time around. But yeah, probably you, the three thousand or four thousand foot elevation difference. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty sure that's all it was. Usually, uh, usually I'll be honest. Harmon's usually leaving me in the dirt, and I'm the fat guy in the back huffing and puffing that can't keep up. <laughs> and uh, usually, I, I mean, I've had I've had my tough times in the mountains, but uh, this but this trip. The altitude like got the Harmon. I was in bad shape, and <laughs> and this, but this trip, this last trip, I was not really affected. Uh, one thing that they, the one thing that it did do to me is it it caused me to have a lot of swelling in my hands, uh, swelling in my joints. <clears throat> but as far as the headaches and the the breathing and the getting around, I didn't have a problem, which is I think it has a lot to do with dietary changes and. Uh, fitness changes that I've made this year. Yeah, I lost uh, half a brother this year. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't there's not quite as much to love. <laughs> no, he's he's kidding. What he's refer, I, what he's referring to. No, I'm not. <laughs> basically I, I quit eating I quit eating a lot of junk, started doing started working out, doing a lot and anyway, I dropped thirty pounds. So that's 30, 30 pounds of fat I'm not carrying around the mountains. You just took thirty it, pounds out of your pack. <laughs> yeah, the third, and it, it, it made an absolute huge, huge, huge difference. Yeah, Kip was Kip was cruising around those mountains way better than what he normally is. Oh yeah, <clears throat> which was cool to see the the difference uh, between between what how how it normally is up there and then how he was this year, well, just it, based on the you know what he did different physically. It, it's nice that when the sun goes down and you climb into your tent, that you're stopping because you run out of daylight and not stopping because you run out of breath or energy. Uh, it makes a big difference. Uh, as far as, as far as the mental thing goes, if you are in bad enough shape to where you're, you're gassed and you're dead by lunchtime every day, you are, you're going to quit way faster. You're not going to have it in you to keep going. And, uh, you just, you've got to, you've got to be better. You've got to be better there physically than what you are here. That's all there is to it. Yeah. One of the things that, that we did, uh, and we can talk about this, and you guys can tell you know if you think it worked or not. Um, in addition to the, you know, getting in a little better shape and doing legs and all that, I took aspirin, and this is just my, you know, maybe dumb redneck way of thinking. Aspirin thins your blood; it improves your circulation. Um, it can only help you in the mountains. Not only, not only that, it'll help fend off those headaches that you get because that's one of the main symptoms is you may not get nauseated you may not feel dizzy or weak but almost everyone that goes from a low elevation to a high elevation is going to get a, some type of headache it may be mild it may be bad but uh i started taking aspirin 
and then we took Mountain Ops Ascent, which is a high-altitude supplement. We all took that several days before. And, you know, it's hard to quantify how much something like that works or if it works. But I do know that I felt fine except for when I didn't take that stuff. I, the aspirin and the ascent, I was taking it pretty much the same time. And I one e the one evening, I didn't take anything. I just went to bed. I was beat. We had driven all night, hiked up. I felt fine all day. That evening, I didn't take anything. I went straight to bed early, right at dark. The next morning, I woke up, and I felt terrible. I had a headache. My stomach curd I had it was lightheaded I had all the symptoms I woke up I drank an algin bottle full of water almost took two aspirin and took mountain off the scent and an hour later I felt fine you know which one of those did that I don't know I do think they both helped and I will be taking them next time you know when we go back up there um, but it you know it I did notice that when I didn't take it I felt worse so it, it can only help you yeah, that's kind of my thing. I I, uh, I took the ascent for four or five days before we left, and then stayed on it the whole time that we were up there. Now, can I say that it helped me any? Uh, to be objective, I can't. I do know that I did way better this time. Now, was it because of the ascent's help, or because I was thirty pounds lighter and had been jogging, you know, three miles a day almost, and running around my neighbor? neighborhood a two mile loop with anywhere between a 50 to 90 pound pack on uh it could have been all those but my take on it is let's just say that mountain ops ascent helped me by even just a five percent boost in you know energy and oxygen and all the you know all the benefits of it that is definitely five percent that i am not going to risk not having by not taking right. it <laughs> so next trip here in a couple of weeks, I'll be doing four to five days of that stuff before and then the entire week that we're, you know, above Timberline. Well, and I mean, it's it's $30 for a bottle that'll last you, you know, for a significant amount of time. Probably It'll probably last, if you go on a week hunting trip, it'll last you a couple of hunting trips. So if that $15, like Kip said, that $15 per week gets you a 10% advantage and I honestly think it's more than that because if you look at the the ingredients in it there's been significant research one of the primary is ginkgo biloba which there there's actually been a blind study done on it up on Denali at a higher altitude than we were uh, that I don't remember the percentages but it, it significantly decreased the amount of altitude sickness that people experience and you know with a with a placebo and the ginkgo biloba and that's one of the primary uh, ingredients in mountain ops ascent along with several other vitamins b and c and other stuff that that's only going to help you anyway so um that, that potentially and like i said this is all being objective not none of us really been able to pinpoint anything i didn't get i ordered my ascent late and I didn't actually take any until you're supposed to take it. What is it? Five days in advance? I think they say three to five days. Yeah, three to five. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't get mine till late. So basically, I didn't start taking it till almost the day before. And I was the worst one, or the, or the one that had it the worst off up there. And I know I didn't have it in my system near as long. Now that could be pure coincidence, and there could be something to that, but. 
Uh, I don't know. It's just I, I actually just now thought about that. Might might have absolutely nothing to do with it at all, but you never know. But with, with all that being said, there's no miracle drug or miracle workout that you can do to go from zero to thirteen thousand feet. It's just not going to happen. There are there no. are, there are physical and you know challenges, atmospheric differences that you're just not going to be able to compensate for. You know that quick, your your body's gonna have to adjust, and you know in a day or two you will feel better. There's, there's a, you know your body they say doesn't fully acclimate for several months or whatever, but within like a, like a two day period you are gonna get dramatically better than you were you know at first. So if if you get up there and you're a little out of shape, and you, you know you have some of those symptoms, just take some ibuprofen or some aspirin push through it because it will get better your body will adjust to it yeah and, and uh another thing people don't don't realize a lot of times it's coming from a really humid climate back east down south uh they'll go out there to that western climate that is ridiculously dry and man you dehydrate really quickly and yeah you it is everybody knows that dehydration even a small percentage of dehydration causes headaches like crazy don't be skipping on the water. Like you definitely drinking plenty of water definitely I think combats the effects that altitude can have on you. Um, and as far as that's one thing, um, I would not recommend to anybody from back east going dumping tons of money into some kind of a uh, some kind of a hunting trip out west and planning on going over twelve thousand feet and spending a week. Whenever when you've never experienced that, because you could definitely you hurt yourself you, quick. You get well, yeah. You could hurt your you can hurt yourself. Can uh, I touch on something back? You know, let's step back a little bit. Back to what you were saying about water. And it, it, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I don't have a medical degree. Or whatever. This is just solid redneck advice. But <laughs> if if you think about it, when when you get dehydrated, what? That's, that's almost that's, just that's as good. That's almost just as good. <laughs> <laughs> if you, when you get dehydrated, your the enemy up there is red blood cells, and your your blood doesn't hold as much oxygen as somebody that's acclimated. So when you get up there, the better your circulation, the better your blood is going to get oxygenated, the more energy you're going to have, etc. So the thicker your blood gets, which is what happens when you get dehydrated, the more those symptoms are going to increase. And with that being said, that evening that I went to bed and I woke up the next morning feeling bad, I hadn't drank much water that day. And the next day I pounded the water and I felt fine. So that's, that's probably one of the you know, what Kip said, getting dehydrated is your enemy. That's one of you know, your worst enemies at high altitude. If you stay hydrated, your circulation is going to be better. Your blood isn't going to be as thick because your body has more water content, and it's only going to help you. That's, that's probably the single most important thing you could do is just drink a lot of water up there. Yeah, because, you know, people, people who've never experienced it don't really understand it, but it, it, there is, you know, the the actual term is acute mountain sickness, and that's it's a real thing. I mean, it's and, and not, it really is dangerous. You know, somebody going from our level to that altitude is is a you know it could potentially be dangerous if you're not in shape and you're not prepared for it and you're not 
staying hydrated and you know doing what you what you need to do up there. Yeah, just just because you went on a family vacation once and and rode the Cog Railway to the top of Pikes Peak and spent thirty minutes at fourteen thousand one hundred ten feet or whatever the elevation is up there, don't think you're just going to be running around at twelve thousand with no problem because you spent thirty minutes up at you know the top of Pikes Peak one time. Uh, there's a big difference between you know sitting in a chair and going up that high versus you know hoofing it several thousand feet a day up and down and carrying weight and whatever else it's, it's it's different well not to mention you're you're climbing you know 30 40 50 degree grades sometimes you're doing stuff that would be hard at sea level anyway with a pack on your back and then you're doing it you know with the altitude effects you know on top of that so that's you know that's that's the battle and you know aside from all the physical stuff the biggest battles between your ears yeah um, it's just it's just being tough enough to say, you know, none of us are tough guys, but it's just having the mental fortitude to say, you know, I'm just going to keep going one foot in front of the other. You know, we're going to make it up there. And, and at the end of the day, no matter how good a shape you're in, if you don't have, you know, the, the old redneck saying is <laughs> he's, he, my grandpa used to say, he's got, that boy's got a whole lot of quit in him. If you got quit on your mind before you start, you're not going to make it up there. Uh, and that's, that's the, the main battle and the mental side of it, your body can do significantly more than your brain thinks it can. Um, yeah. And you can always, you know, obviously you have to be in some form of physical shape, but you can always push through and, you know, make yourself do what, you know, what you really want to do. Yeah. But you know, there's a, but at, at the end of the day, there's a big difference between surviving on the mountain and thriving on the mountain. Yeah, you can sure have a lot more fun if you're, you know, like Kip said, he had a he had a lot better experience this time just because of the work he put in. Yeah, it it, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, you know, even even at lower elevations, if you're if you're in better shape, you're going to have more fun, and that's the whole reason why I go out there because it is a ridiculous amount of fun. So, and if you if you are planning on going on a hunt like that, I. I really think it's important if you can spend, even if it's a quick rush trip like what we just got there doing, try to go on a scouting trip uh, just to get up to that elevation, uh, experience what that little bit of altitude is, actually see what you're looking at. And uh, I think that's a, a good segue into our next, our next little line of topic here. Yeah. Oh, is what we actually did on our scouting trip. Yeah, let's talk about the scouting trip. But Harmon just Harmon just brought up something really important, guys or gals. This is extremely important. You need to listen to this. I know what Here, you're here's, here's a great great trick. Let's just say in 2018 you have plans to go hunt in Colorado. Let's just say let's just throw a dart at the map and say the Gunnison area. So. You have plans, and you realize 2018 I want to go, so I'm going to start maybe applying for my deer tags. I, I think there's over-the-counter elk hunting up there off the top of my head. I'm not sure. Um, so you're like, 2018 I want to go, so here's what you do. At the beginning of 2017, you say, honey, let's go on vacation. 
<laughs> and you get the purest, at the, purest motives ever. The purest motives ever. And you just like, you just load the whole family up. We're going to go camping in Colorado. We're going to go see the Black Canyon or the Gunnison or whatever might be happening to be in that area. And at the very least, go spend a week in the area. That way you have a little bit of a clue what's going on. You go, hey, that's a really good national forest road. I think we need, I think we should just go drive through the national forest. My goodness, I like that mountain. Let's go hiking, kids. Uh, <laughs> and the reason why I know this is because I think at least a half a dozen times growing up, Dad took us on family vacations to Colorado, <laughs> a.k.a. scouting trips. So... <laughs> Use your use your use your vacation time very strategically, and you can get a lot of mileage out of that. What I actually thought Kip was going to say, which also is a very very good point when it comes to to getting up there and getting a good eye on things, is Google Earth is a liar. Do not <laughs> believe Google <Lies>. Earth. <laughs> so let's let's tell Google. the story. Uh, can I tell the story about our our? Uh, I'm trying not to say any names here. I almost did. Our first ascent and descent? Our, yeah, our big ascent. We we had this great plan. Okay, we want to get over here to this basin. We're going to you know stop at this trailhead, hike in. We're going to go over the top of this peak. There's a you know basin two miles away that we want to check out. You know, Then there's some more basins we want to look at on from there. So we get to this first peak, and... We go up to the top, no big deal, it's all cool, we're taking pictures. Well, we get over the back, and it looks like a cliff had a baby with a rock slide. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's no way, it's either that, or turn around and go back to the trailhead. And that and wasn't happening. Fig- and go in a totally different way, you know, from the bottom. And we just, Harmon almost got crushed by a rock. Kip yeah, almost trust me. No, yeah, Harmon almost crushed Kip, Kip with a boulder. <laughs> um, it, it it was just like crumbled up rock that anything you stepped on moved, and when you touched one rock, four other rocks moved. <laughs> there was nothing stable going down that. So, with that being said, that looked like a you know grassy slope on Google Earth. Maybe not quite a grassy slope, but it, it looked very like a normal, any other normal slope up there. But do not believe Google Earth. Don't assume that, oh, this looks easy. We can get from here to here and, you know, no problem. That you may have issues if you rely on Google Earth. Google Earth is a liar. <laughs> Nothing beats boots on the ground. Yeah, you can uh, you can learn a ton of stuff. Google Earth, quite frankly, is revolutionary. And we have... We have spent between the three of us a bunch of hours this summer picking it apart, the area we're going from every different angle. But the truth is, I knew from our bear hunt last year that uh, when you look at Google Earth, it yeah, you, you can see the topography and the elevation changes, but it's way more extreme. If it, if it looks bad on Google Earth, yeah, you're probably going to need a rope to get, get, get over it in real life. Well, that's um, what? That's the That's thing, the too, thing like, too. Like you can, you can look at topo maps that show you contour lines, and you can, you know, you can see the how fast or you know slow, gradual the elevation changes. But the type of footing can determine whether you can walk on it or not. Like there exactly. was there was one place where, you know, 
we went down a fifth, probably 50, 55 degree slope where I dropped my camera and my $3,000 camera went rock skipping. But, but, it, but it had grass and the rocks, you know, it was a more stable type footing. But if it's on like scree or loose shale, you don't want to be on a 55 degree slope. It, it's not going to be fun because there's, you're going to be sliding down it basically. Um, especially with a pack. You definitely don't want to be under Harmon. <laughs> so yeah so just because it just because you look at your topo and you're like oh that's you know your topo map and you're like oh that's a that's a you know that's not a bad it's not a bad slope or you you know look at it on google earth and you get do like i do and get down like from a side profile and like oh that doesn't look that bad just because it the angle is not that bad doesn't mean that the footing is good enough that it's going to be easy to go up and down um, so that's something to keep in mind is, like Harmon said, boots on the ground. Some of these places, like, we went in early, and it's good that we did because if we decide to hunt that area, we know, you know, now we'll probably go in a different way because there's there's better ways to get in there. And nothing beats a, a solid set of tracking poles. They're worth their weight in gold. We learned that real quick. Yeah, you know, it's it's easy to look at... <laughs> To look at the uh, the REI guy, REI guy. tree huggers, like, yeah, you know, poles. look at what's that, you know, weenie doing carrying trekking poles. Well, when you get a 50, 60 pound pack on your back, and not to mention if you add the weight of meat on top of that, uh, that it makes a huge difference. You you have four points of contact all the time, and it. It just takes so much of a beating, you know, off of your legs that your arms are taking a lot of that load. Yeah, I was kind of skeptical at first, and uh, me, everybody, everybody in the know was like, "Okay, you need you need them." So I went ahead and invested in them. Thank you, Camo Fire. <laughs> You're awesome. Camo <laughs> Fire and Easton, man, you guys make some tough trekking poles because <laughs> I don't know how I didn't snap the end off of one of those things. Some of that stuff we were going down. They were just sliding down in cracks and getting hung up. And several times I was like, that thing's got to be bent or broken. And they're fine. So <laughs> they're going next trip. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, one thing that's funny, you talked about, you know, this basin's only like two, two and a half miles away. We're going to go over this, drop down this saddle, get yeah, over we're here. Just, we're just going to run over there. Yeah. A nice well, little green meadow up there. Let's go. We, we, uh, I'm, I'm going to back up about 15 years when uh, Herman and I were teenagers, we went into this, the first, the very first time we went into this mountain range, we just decided we were going to take a summer backpacking trip and we picked this, uh, we picked this particular lake that seemed like a great spot to camp by and it was, I think, six and a half mile hike in. So we're like, we're going to go hike up there, spend three days, you know, hang out, uh, catch a few trout, look at some mule deer, turn around and come back. So we take off. Uh, you know, a couple hours after daylight, bebopping up the mountains with our ridiculously overweight packs because we did not know what we were doing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it was summertime on the weekend. There's people, so we're passing different people fly fishing and and uh, just different, you know, backpackers. We're going, and we're thinking we're about half of the way there. And so I remember this one particular woman, she had to be like late 50s. And uh, she just had a day pack on, and she was already coming down the trail. So, hey, how's it going? We talked for a second. So how much further is it to the lake? Oh, you're not that far. 
Well, how but how but how much time does it take time wise? Oh, it's no big deal. I you know I usually come up there. I'm, I usually go to the top, have a picnic, and I'm usually all the way back down. Uh, you know, before one or two o'clock, and um, you'll be up there in no time. Well, that's coming from somebody who spends every weekend at ten thousand feet and higher. And uh, for I've never seen a old woman in that, that good of shape like she was just like <laughs> acting like it was no big deal well us us little teenagers uh from louisiana it about killed us by the time the uh afternoon storm set in we were just over halfway i think and uh we were not, we were totally under geared and a lightning storm and hell storm from oh it was terrible uh, <laughs> i don't even know where to go with that it, it was just it was just a terrible terrible trip we realized real quickly that you don't you don't come from you don't come from sea level with a 50 pound pack and run six and a half miles straight up a mountain before lunchtime yeah what we thought was going to take a couple of hours you know tops a full day wind up taking a solid day and a half yeah just to get there you know six ten miles here whoop-de-doo six to ten miles up there you got your work cut out for you. Yeah, so what we were saying, if there's a basin two miles away, it might take you every bit of two hours to get to that basin, depending, or more, depending on the uh, terrain that you're looking at. Well, that country is so big, and the expanses, you know, and the basins are just so massive that it's, it's, so, and it's so clear, and you can see so far, it's easy to look especially if you're higher than where you're looking at, it's easy to look and say, oh, yeah, let's just go right over there to that group of trees or, you know, that. let's go right up to that next ridge. But that next ridge might be, you know, a mile and a half away with a 1,500-foot ele- elevation difference. Um, so that's part of the reason. And I, and I found myself doing that a lot up there is you, you underestimate the distances because, you know, you'll – You'll look and say, oh, yeah, look, there's a slope over there. And then you're like, oh, those little bitty specks from your deer. And you, you, you know, pull out your 60 power spotter and you still can barely see those deer. And you realize they're like two and a half, three miles away when it looks, you know, the actual slope itself looks really close. Uh, that's, that's one of the things up there that's a, a challenge is, is, you know, judging distance, not just, you know, for your bow and your range finding and angles and all that, all those issues. That's a whole another full podcast. But just your distance in general and navigating around and moving around, it's like the, it just, those elevations just throw you off because everything is so much bigger up there than you're used to. Yeah, we wound up gaining and losing about 6,400 feet in elevation in just two days. Yeah, well, and it's, there is, there is that elevation. Now, we're in one of the more rugged places that you can be. There's like, there's a lot, there's a lot more gentle places that are just downright fun compared to this place in Colorado. Yeah, so, I mean, this is let's it's not all be terms. realistic here. It's this just, is a sheep unit. It's yeah, this we're place hunting is mule deer in a sheep sick unit in the head. <laughs> what? I said this place is fun if you're a little sick in the head. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, back Justin mentioned the spotters. Like you, you you're potentially going out west. it's a cool chance to broaden your horizons is you're pulling from a totally different bag of tricks. Uh, You've got, it's just a lot more fun. It really is. It's just a different experience all the way around. You you owe it to yourself to try. Well, Kip, uh, we're not going to get into a bunch of gear on this podcast because that's a 
that's a two hour podcast in itself if we get into gear. Yeah. Kit mentioned something and we experienced a little bit of that. He mentioned something when they were teenagers and they did their first trip up there, how the weather, you know, changed and there a storm came in and they got hailed on. Well, the same thing happened to us. And that's one thing that, you know, we all invested in good gear to go up there. Harmon's wearing first light, Kip and I are wearing stuff from Cryptic. And you know, it, it may be sunny one second and, you know, five minutes later it's hailing on you and you're like, where did that come from? And you can't even, you know, see the ground or you can't see up because there's so many, you know, it's just a thick storm overhead. Or you can look out and you can see it rolling in and it's like, oh man, we're about to get hammered. <laughs> but but having good rain gear and, you know, good gear in general, like I noticed that, you know, that that high performance you know, sheep hunting, mountain hunting type gear, it is worth its weight in gold when you get up there in those kind of environments where the temperatures are changing and, the you know, it can go from hot to cold to wet to back Super to hot windy. again. Yeah, the wind. Um, we, some of the, the the cryptic gear and the merino and down and all that all that stuff that you pay extra money for, uh, it, it really performed well up there. And, and I don't, I don't see myself going back up there without it, you know. Absolutely not. That that puffy jacket of mine alone is enough to. I mean that that's <laughs> that thing was awesome. You throw the throw throw that on when the wind was ripping close to forty miles an hour at times, and it just totally got rid of the wind. Well, that's the thing up there. You know, it can be sixty-five, seventy degrees, and then you know you top a ridge where you're exposed. And all of a sudden, the wind's blowing 30, 40 miles an hour coming over that ridge. And then in the evenings, the temperature can drop. One night, uh, when we camped up high, it probably got, it was probably in the low 40s, maybe high 30s. But there was a, we were tucked behind a ridge, but there was still a 20, 30 mile an hour wind blowing probably half the night. And it got it got chilly. If, you, if we wouldn't have had the right gear and the right, you know, shelter we would have gotten pretty chilly so the it pays to to invest in good gear you know whether it's get some kind of mountain hunting type gear if you're going to go hunt in those type of environments whether it's you know all brands aside whether it's sitka or kuyu or first light or cryptic or whatever get the gear that the right gear for the job when you go and hunt in those type of areas that's one of those things that obviously it's going to double over as a benefit for down here too um i've been able to downsize my my hunting clothing for around here just because of using that gear just because it it's more efficient from from what i found it keeps you warmer uh it doesn't take as much to keep you warm and uh it's just it's definitely beneficial to check into well people you know people back east and we're not going to get too far down this rabbit trail but People back east, or us, I can say us because we've all done it, are used to, you know, if, you, if you're cold, you're just sitting in a stand so you can throw on another layer. Well, you don't have the issue of getting hot and sweat like you do. You know, you may have it walking to your tree stand, but once you get in the tree stand, you can put on whatever you want to stay warm. In that mountaintop environment, you've got to have stuff that breathes enough and doesn't you know trap all the heat so that or, or doesn't trap all the moisture so you you know you don't otherwise you're going to be soaking wet running if you're running around up there 
and you know Under Armour 4.0 with with six layers on on top of it because it's 40 degrees you're gonna die. <laughs> well, the There's, big the big thing is you don't want to have to carry all that mess up there. <laughs> and not to mention the weight. Yeah, the weight issue is this this high tech gear is dramatically lighter than than you know your typical tree stand hunter's gear. Yeah, and quite frankly, it's once you wear it and experience the difference and realize that it really was worth paying all this for, uh, it's pretty cool. But I'll be honest, uh, all the the uh, all the stuff I've killed up there before, I've been wearing basically 100% cotton. Uh, and I'll tell you this, you d don't be in, don't be intimidated by what we're saying and say, man, I can't afford all that. My goodness. That jacket costs two hundred and fifty bucks. This pair of pants costs ninety bucks. I can't afford that. Yeah, you, well, you're, you're going to drop a thousand dollars essentially for a full layer system hunting up there. Yeah, um, but to it. but don't be intimidated and feel like you have to because, quite frankly, you don't. You don't. Um, but more than on your very first trip, you're not going to go live out of a backpack for eight days at twelve thousand feet anyway. Uh, you know, nearly. Uh, make it enjoyable there's no every, I mean, every every trip we have done up until now and like so we've killed elk we've killed mule deer uh and, and and some pretty nice stuff too we've been truck camping you know you're basically back at the back at the big tent with the campfire every night hanging out with the family and uh you know you're usually never more than a mile and a half from the road that's that's perfectly acceptable yeah, that's a totally different situation i'm referring to the right that the way that, we're hunting this year backpacking in several miles it's, and it's a it's really you know different environment yeah you you can hunt it with the same gear you hunt back east but if you're going to jump off and you're going to get back to where you are you know five miles from the closest road you better be prepared because it gets well, it gets western real quick <laughs> with, with that with that being said you, you could always do it with walmart gear but it's just not going to be very fun when your rain jacket starts leaking or your cotton layer gets wet and it quits insulating, uh, it's not you're not going to have fun. You know you're not going to die, but you're probably not going to have very much fun. Yeah, especially uh, when it when it drizzles and sleets and hails for three days straight, and you're wet for three days straight. Yeah, that's that's when guys leave the mountain. Yeah. So this this was a scouting trip, and while we've been talking about gear and all the fun and pain we endured we we did actually see some critters up there and we're I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we saw especially since this was kind of our plan b site yeah we we saw some some nice deer um some of those deer well let me let me talk about let's, let's kind of merge this in with like what our kind of what our goals our expectations are for this upcoming hunt and then we'll talk about what we saw too. Um, I've got 17 days up there this year. I've I've been blessed with a awesome job schedule for hunting. Um, so I'm I'm looking for a 160 inch deer. If you know if it's bigger than that, that's great. There are bigger deer than that in that area, um, but that's what I'm kind of setting my goal at because i have a lot of time before season opens to scout i have five days up there to scout before the season ever opens um we with that being said the biggest deer we saw up there on this trip what what do you guys think by the time he finishes growing upper 150s 
some of those bigger bucks maybe? Yeah, I think if they put on that, 10, 12 inches, they're probably going to be, you know, mid to upper 150s is what I'm yeah, saying. From from the time we went to the time they quit growing, they they have roughly about a month to finish out. So, you know, you're all these 4x4s, even if they only put an inch on each antler on each on each uh, antler tip, you're looking at at least 8 more inches. So, I think the the biggest one probably um might might gross out at 160, but most of them, your average buck we probably saw was 140 to 150. Well, the average one that we even paid gave a second look was 140 to 150. Yeah, there was a couple. There was a couple we saw on the way out uh, that they they actually skyline themselves pretty good, and those were those were good bucks. But still, same you know one 150 class bucks. But I'm over here with a traditional bow and i will shoot a 140 inch deer all day long <laughs> well well with that being said this unit isn't you know we can disclaimer here this unit isn't known as a trophy unit this is more about the experience and the kind of country you're hunting in and obviously you know we're all bloodthirsty killers we want to kill something but at the end of the day this isn't a giant mule deer unit you know that that doesn't mean there probably aren't a few there or i know there are a few there but that doesn't you know it's not a top-notch trophy unit. It's more about, you know, hunting in some really gorgeous, rugged country and, you know, doing it the hard way, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and, and, and let, let's be real here. And we've basically been hunting in and around the same unit for all these years. Dad's been gone. Dad's gone up there for like 35 years. So I've gone 16. Harmon's gone about a dozen or more. And in all that, in, in, the, in my experience – all the times I've gone up there, I have seen, the, okay, the number of bucks that would actually hit the 180 mark or actually go a little bit over, I can count on probably four fingers. Um, <laughs> you know, and this is every year. So how many seeing, is that? Probably four. <laughs> uh, so you, you know what I'm saying? It's not just like they're everywhere. And all that, and all that time out of, out of the 16 years I've gone, I've probably had uh, 12 deer tags, and I think, um, well, all the mule deer I have killed except for one were smaller than 120. I've got one that grosses right, what, right at 160, but out of all of our years combined hunting, dad, Harmon, me, plus some cousins and uncles and different people who have gone, that 160-inch mule deer is the biggest one we've pulled out of that unit. Yeah. Um, so quit looking at social media and thinking you're going to go up there and go whack you a 200-inch buck. Yeah, this isn't this isn't Randy Ulmer. This <laughs> quit, look, quit looking at Randy Ulmer. You're gonna get disappointed. Or the Arizona Strip, or yeah, anything this, like this that. This isn't this isn't you know the Henry Mountains. <laughs> your your average Western hunter likes they they end up killing deer on the same scale as what everybody else does back but, east. You, you know, it's not. Don't think that there's a 160 inch deer behind every bush. Uh, because you know how hard it is to kill a hundred, I mean, to kill a Pope and Young well back east. Young sets their minimum scores at certain levels for a reason. If 145 inch, which is a minimum Pope and Young score, if all the deer were out there were 145, I guarantee you that your Pope and Young minimum would be up around 160 or 170. So if you even get in the 140s, you are doing good. If, if this is your first trip out there, lower the bar, get your head out of the clouds, 
and you get a 120 or 130 inch four by four sucker, you whack that thing and you have a good time and don't hang your head. You'd be proud of it. Well, that's the thing too. Like the, the country, some of the country that we're hunting in on this trip, if, if you kill a deer and pack it out of there and you're successful, you've you got a better story than, you know, 90% of the people that are out there hunting. Regardless, you know, the deer may not look that big in the pictures, but but the story and the experience is is worth so much more than the trophy size in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would absolutely love to kill, you know, a, a solid 150-inch buck, but when I think about the fact that I'm backpacking in, I'm hunting with a traditional bow, and it's all spot and stalk. I'm from Louisiana, low altitude. You start putting all that stuff together, and I'm I'm just looking for a respectable representative species. Uh, um, one twenty, one thirty is about what I'm expecting to kill. Uh, if I kill one bigger than that, that's awesome. My first trad kill was actually a mule deer, and it was a two-year-old little almost four by five that probably didn't score 85 90 inches and uh he may have grossed 100 and maybe <laughs> <laughs> but man I, that was that was one of the proudest kills i've had he was uh you know nothing nothing major but he was just a cool looking deer or you know for me it was just a cool ex- experience this is going to be that much more, more just because of where we're going to be the you know the backdrop that we're going to have to hunt in uh, it's just well, it's 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 epic country. I mean, there's no, there, there's not probably, you know, any finer or rougher country in the United States. Uh, there's some that's probably equivalent, but I doubt there's any country, aside from maybe you know the Beartooth and some places in Montana that are that are rougher than this. And you know, at the same time, it's it's gorgeous. I mean, you can you can anybody can take good pictures up there because there's no bad pictures. <laughs> <laughs> we were joking on the way home and Kip's like man I took some good pictures up there and I was like yeah anybody can take good pictures up there there's, there's nothing bad to point a camera at <laughs> but, and Kip takes yeah. good pictures I'm not knocking on him but but it, it was just a joke but uh, it, it's it's epic country I mean there's there and that's one thing that you know if you if you've been staring at pine trees in Mississippi it's going to really, you know, that's part of, that's one of the biggest things for me is just, I like to take pictures and that country is just, it's fine. I mean, there's, there's no other word for it. It's fine. Yeah. Go up there looking for for an experience, not inches. Throw your tape measure out the window and forget all that mess. Go up there and have a good time and just, just be happy with what you get. Yeah. Get some, get some critters under your belt before you start worrying about inches. I'm, I'm wanting a big deer, but I, I go back and I look, and I, I have had some pretty crummy luck. Look, there, the few deer I, I don't I don't know how many mule deer tags I've had. I haven't had many, but um, I've just had some some rough patches trying to hunt them. I've I've only killed two mule deer. Um, one of them was the one I just mentioned, and then I killed another one uh, with my compound that was two inches shy of Pope and Young. Uh, you know, he's still a 140-inch buck, but uh, so I'm obviously would like a nice deer, but since I've only got two mule deer under my belt, I'm not going to be super choosy, uh, especially 
especially when I, I'm sitting there, <laughs> sitting there with him, with him within bow range, and I'm I'm looking at him. My my standards might drop real quick. <laughs> and yeah, it's a. Uh, uh, and like I said, they've got. The, I'm I'm really jealous. They've got the deer tags. I'm sitting on two points now, so in theory. I should get it next year and we'll probably be going into the same area. But uh, so I'm just buying this over the counter elk tag. Here's what my goal is my goal is any legal bull, like seriously. It's, you know, I have to look at the regulations again. And I think four it's four on points side. on a side. Since I am just doing an over the counter, over the counter elk tag. I, I do know that there are some monster bulls in this area, but I also know the difficulty that I'm going to face going up there, finding one and getting a shot in, uh, in less than a week. I'm not going to be picky because I'd, I'd much rather have a freezer full of elk meat than, uh, than nothing. So if it's a legal bull, I'm going to be taking the shot by the last day. Uh, it's an either sex tag. A cow better not come anywhere close to me. Uh, because I, I'm going to do my dead level best. If I'm there for eight days, there will be eight days of blood, sweat, and tears on that mountain trying to fill that tag. Um, well, with but, that being said, you know, with a little bit of backstory, this this is not a trophy elk unit either, just like it's not a trophy deer unit. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't trophies there, and one of the reasons those trophy numbers are low is because it takes a partly insane person to shoot an elk several miles from a road in that terrain. <laughs> But yeah, the, so you know, it, it, with that being said, the numbers you know the numbers could be skewed when they say this is a you know a good bull is a two sixty in this unit, which is what you know what it says that that could be because nobody's killing big bulls up there because they don't want to go up there to shoot an elk. Um, so there are some big bulls up there, but you know this isn't this isn't unit twenty seven in Arizona. It's you're not going to kill a, a four hundred inch bull up there. And also the week we're going, so that's working against you. And then the week we're going is the opening of deer and elk season, but it's the first week of season. So these those bulls, they're not in that rut mode. They're not going to be responding much to calls, and you're going to be essentially spotting and stalking them like you would deer. Yeah, there won't be. Um, in in all, it's been it has been. It's been several years since I've heard even the first bugle uh, in Colorado, and this is and and here's why: where we're usually well, that's the time you hunt. That's the time yeah. you guys hunt too. You know, you know, typically mid September is when it's all happening, and we're there like at the end of August. Uh, yeah, there there have been some years that the elk have been just going crazy. Um, the uh, but but more often than not, man, you're hunting the end of August and you'll still have bulls running together. I know year before last, uh, I was we were seeing groups of three to five bulls together, uh, and in the in the one place that we usually hunt, it's like you basically weren't seeing any herding yet of cows and bulls. It was they were still in bachelor groups, and that's kind of what that's kind of what I'll be facing now. It won't be like they're going to be screaming their heads off and. Um, you know, doing the whole rut type activity you see on TV. What I can expect is I'm basically going to sit back and spend as much time glassing as I can until I can figure out uh, what some elk are doing, you know, whether they're, you know, feeding above the, 
uh, feeding above the tree line and dropping back down into the trees during the middle of the day to bed. And uh, I'm just going to have to try to get in between them or find them bedded in a position to where I can stalk them. So I'm just going to be happy. I'm just going to be happy with a legal elk. I, it won't take much to please me this trip. Yeah. Well, that uh, we've we've talked about pretty much everything we had, you know, talk about in this podcast, and we're already running over an hour here. So we need to go ahead and wrap this up. But uh, this is probably the last time we'll get together uh, before we get, you know, before we go to Colorado because uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've got a lot going on the next couple of weeks before I leave. Um, but when we get back, we'll we'll probably do a podcast on gear, and you know go into some of the gear we used and some of the stuff that works and didn't work because I know that some of us will be getting questions about this. Uh, Harmon has been getting hit a lot, hit up a lot already on social media for you know what jacket is that, what tin is that, yada yada. So we can go into some of that, do a podcast on you know what gear we used, what we would use again, what we're not going to use again because it didn't work. Uh, and you know we'll have some more stuff coming from these hunts and you know obviously tell the story of what happened while we're up there but uh kip you have anything else that's pretty much wraps it up for this this podcast yeah for this topic it definitely does and you know after all our bread and butter is still whitetail so we've got we still have some discussions we're planning you know a bunch of tree stand set up type discussions and a bunch of things that are going to be happening because even as much as i'm thinking about uh, mule deer and elk right now the second that we're driving back towards Louisiana at the end of that hunt I will be highly in tune <laughs> ready for October 1st again so it's uh we've got a we've got a big year we got a bunch of plans and uh hopefully hopefully when we come back with you and discuss Colorado we'll have uh in theory if all goes as planned in our dreams we're gonna have stories of two monster mule deer and one little bitty bull. <laughs> My feet are firmly on the ground. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at the Hard Scrabble Hunters. Yeah, we're going to post updates as much as we can while we're up there on our Instagram site. So, And I will if I don't run over my phone with a four-wheeler or something stupid. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, killed his phone on the scouting trip. We left that part out. Actually, Justin killed it. But I killed your phone after you dropped it under the four wheeler tire. It was a group. It was a group assassination. <laughs> <laughs> we ganged up on it. But anyway, you guys have a good night. Uh, check us out on, like I said, check us out on Facebook, Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. Tell us how bad our audio was and how we can do better. Um, but thank you guys for listening. Y'all have a good night. See ya.